Hi, guys and gals. Welcome to another episode of the Man Talks podcast. My name is Roger Nairn. And I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. On this podcast, we'll talk about purpose, legacy, influence, love, sex, success, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook, or go to www.mantalks.com. So let's get on to today's show. After a stint policing the rough streets of Kansas City, Missouri, Chris Voss joined the FBI, where his career as a hostage negotiator brought him face-to-face with a range of criminals, including bank robbers and terrorists. Reaching the pinnacle of his profession, he became the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. Never Split the Difference, his new book, takes you inside the world of high-stakes negotiation and into Chris Voss's head, revealing the skills that helped him and his colleagues succeed where it mattered most, saving lives. In this practical guide, he shares the nine effective principles, counterintuitive tactics and strategies you too can use to become more persuasive in both your personal life and profession. Life is a series of negotiations you should be prepared for. Buying a car, negotiating a salary, buying a home, renegotiating rent, deliberating with your partner, taking your emotional intelligence and intuition to the next level, never split the difference, gives you the competitive edge in any discussion. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chris Voss. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Man Talks podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Uh, Before we get started, we always like to ask the same questions to all our guests. If they can share with us a defining moment for you uh, in your life. Well, I think it would probably be the thing that jumps out the most is when I got the call that Martin Burnham had been killed in the Philippines. It was a, a kidnapping that I'd been working for over a year and um, it was a tremendous amount of U.S. government involvement. I mean, the director of the FBI had come out to visit and see on site. And when I met him, he knew my name before I had met him, which was kind of a, a heady moment. But then about two months later, uh, there was a botched rescue attempt and two out of the three remaining hostages in the Philippines were killed by friendly fire. And that was... Uh, that was probably the worst moment in my entire professional career. It was a, it was the lowest moment. I thought we were going to get them out. I thought, I thought we had everything going and we'd gotten visibility at the highest levels. And I went from maybe the the best moment to the worst moment in my professional career, a very short period of time. And it was then that I decided that we had to get better. It's, it was either get out or get better. And I knew we had to get better and we did everything we knew how to do as well as we could do it. It just wasn't enough. And that was really when I decided that we have to get better. We have to get better as an organization. We have to get better as a profession. And I had to get better as a, as a negotiator. That's a, that's a very interesting story. And, and um, yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing, us, sharing that with us. You have, you have a pretty 
uh, prestigious background, you know, with, with the FBI, you have over 50 kidnappings worldwide over the 24 years of your career. Um, and, and at one point you were working at, um, as the agency's elite lead international hostage negotiator. And so, you know, it's interesting to talk, to hear you talk about things like failure and needing to get better. Cause I'm sure that from the outside perspective, a lot of people would, would have the perspective that, you know, the, the FBI is the elite, right? They, they are the ones who, uh, who get called on when when times are tough? So, you know what what was that like? Like, what did it take in order to shift and 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 sort of move away from this? You know, failure. This isn't good enough, and actually implement some change within the organization um, for for you and and for them uh, as a team. Well, I had I had to find some direction. Um, I happened to be I was, I was very lucky because I couldn't have possibly have been in a more supportive environment from my position directly to the director of the FBI at the time. I mean, my immediate boss was probably one of the most influential hostage negotiators in the world. The guy that was running our division believed either that you were all the way in or you were all the way out. And so he wouldn't tolerate any lack of resources for any tasks that we were given. And he was very clear about it to the director of the FBI um, you know, the boss of the division was a guy named Roger Nisley and the director was Louis Free. And he used to tell us that he told Louis Free, look, either do this or not. Give us what we need to do the job or tell us not to do the job. So I was really lucky that I had such a supportive change of command that or chain of command that I could say, look, we have to do this. This is the direction we, we need. And one of the small things that I did immediately was at the time, Harvard and still is, you know, renowned as a top learning institution on the entire planet. And so I said, look, you guys got to let me go up to Harvard. I got to see what these guys know. I got to see if they can add to our body of knowledge. And, and I got complete and absolute support to look wherever I needed to look to find ways to get better. And so it was relatively easy for me at the time because I worked for great people and they wanted to make sure we had what we needed. Very cool. And and it's through your career and, and through your uh, expertise in hostage negotiations, that you have come to written this incredible book, which is called Never Split the Difference. Um, wondering if you can give a little bit of an overview of the book and maybe point out who the book is for and, and sort of why somebody should pick it up. Well, the book is uh, Lessons of uh, Hostage Negotiation Applied to Business and Personal Life, which I, I realize sounds like a crazy idea, right? I mean, how, how is it possible that what kidnappers and hostage takers do in dealing with them uh, could be used on our day-to-day business and personal lives. But, you know, the book is for anybody that wants to have better relationships and be successful in negotiation outcomes. Uh, You know, if you want to spend less time in negotiations, if you want to waste less time, if you want to have a better relationship with the people you negotiate with, because you realize if you're talking to somebody at all, you know, they're in your world and you're going to continue to talk to them. You know, a couple of the negotiation myths that I learned you know, I don't believe that negotiations are one-offs. I believe that if uh, your reputation precedes you wherever you go, and then how you treat someone is going to have an impact on your next deal. Even if, you know, even in the unlikely event that you never deal with them again, you're going to deal with somebody they know, and they're going to find out how you did and how you acted. So reputation, even among hostage negotiators, is an important thing because we have repeat customers. So it's, uh, and we always had to leave somebody willing to deal with us again, because you can't really sue a hostage taker. 
No. <laughs> it's, it's funny. You know, when, when I first saw the, the book title, Split the Difference, I, I immediately thought to myself, you know, we, we live in this, I guess, we live in this sort of self-help world where we talk about, you know, go for win-win and, and always try to split the difference. You know, what? why should the average person care about always winning and always always wanting to uh, negotiate for the win. What are, what are a few examples of where negotiations can be beneficial in someone's life outside of hostage negotiation? Yeah, well, you know, and, and the other person, it's also really kind of predicated on the other person may not know exactly for sure what, what they really want, and they might be afraid to talk with you. And it's, it's really kind of looking out for the other person because a lot of people are just not that good at negotiations and you're negotiating with someone that, and they don't know how to let you know what they want without it turning into a fight. You know, they, they feel like they have to attack and you, and you don't have to attack. So, and also you might not know for sure what the best outcome is yourself. Um, you know, there's a saying that I love, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. And, you know, one of my favorite examples is a negotiation between a husband and a wife over a Christmas tree. And the husband was absolutely sure that he wanted an artificial tree and had all the practical reasons. And she was being kind of crazy and insistent that they get this, uh, a real tree instead of an artificial tree. And so, and I don't know if she was afraid to say exactly why, or she was really being very conscious of his feelings. So he finally said something to her that sort of unlocked what she was, where she was coming from. And he said, you know, it sounds to me like you, you must have had real trees growing up. And then immediately she told him about how important Christmas had been to her family and all these amazing memories that she had around a real tree as a child. And she wanted their children to have the same amazing memories. And he immediately switched to her side. So sometimes the other side, why they want something may make their answer better than yours. And I don't know how you split the difference between an artificial tree and a real tree. Uh, it just doesn't seem very practical. So either one answer or the other is a better answer. And it's also be willing to, to give the other side the benefit of the doubt. They might have a good idea. I like it. Well, I think that there's, you know, your, your book has some really um, tangible parts to it, some very tactical pieces to it. And I think for the, for the listeners out there in our, in our audience, you know, I can think back to so many times, whether it was in my relationship or, you know, whether it was with work, because uh, I used to work with Apple, um, that negotiation skills were a, a really big part of, of you know, dealing with people on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's very relatable. This book is extraordinarily relatable for anybody out there that's just looking to maybe have a little bit of edge in, in their career or in their, in their work. And one of the things that I really loved and like really grasped onto in your book was practice tactical empathy. I would love for you to expand on that because it's a very um, almost like a military approach to something that is generally considered soft. So can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, sometimes I refer to it as as weapons grade empathy or military. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and it's really taken it to the next level because empathy is a concept has been around long enough that, that people are almost bored by, it, you know, that puts them to sleep. But, you know, we've learned enough about it, so it's no longer just this blanket, be empathic idea, but we know now how the brain works and we know what to listen for as opposed to, and it's a tactical 
And I chose the word tactical because, you know, we do think of empathy as this warm and fuzzy huggy bear thing and, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And and it's really not that. It's it's a very strategic approach. It's designed, you know, at at worst to eliminate or eliminate obstacles. Like, what are we doing wrong that's holding us back? What, what do I know for sure? What's the sequencing of how the brain works? Well, the sequencing of how the brain works is that our negatives are banging around in our brain about four times as hard as the positives are, which means the reasons why we won't make a deal are often more influential on the outcome than the reasons we will make the deal. And every single negotiation, people pitch it like, here are my benefits, Here's what I got for you. Here, this is why this is going to make you better. When the other person is thinking, I don't care because I don't like you. I don't like your company. I don't like the way you're talking to me. I don't like how sunny it is today. I don't like the fact that I couldn't find a parking space. All the don't likes are banging in their brain about four times as hard as the do likes, you know, the positives. We learned this in a hostage negotiation, a couple of things. You know, first, let's focus on what's bothering the guy. And we'll get a lot farther, a lot faster. And so that's the opposite sequence of what we're used to. So the, cal- the calculated, the calibrated, the tactical approach is I'm going to get after the negatives and we're going to get a deal probably three to four times faster if I do the approach that's different than everybody else, which is here's what I've got for you that you're going to like. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a strategic approach born of over 40 years of experience in hostage negotiation and then figuring out how to apply it to personal life and professional life. I think that's such a difficult thing when you're in the heat of the battle in the middle of a negotiation because it's such a adversarial or it can be such an adversarial environment that you're in that it's, it's, it's very difficult to feel empathy for the other person. I mean, you can imagine Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump feeling empathy for each other and truly, you know, getting into each other's minds when all they want to do is just beat the hell out of each other. It must be incredibly difficult. Yeah. And she would, you know, she's a great example because she had the courage to talk about empathy in, in negotiations and, you know, of, you know, he half last night tried to accuse her of, he didn't say soft, but he, he wanted to uh, talk about her stamina. And she turned around and said, look, you, you travel as many places as I have in as short a time as I did and negotiate as many deals as I have internationally, then let's talk about stamina. So I think, I think she's on the record as, as being the, of any government employee in the United States, she's traveled more. Right. And, you know, no, and so she's tough. I mean, if anybody, regardless of what you think of her, I don't think anybody thinks of her as soft and she's the one talking about empathy and, and she's, you know, she's a mercenary. If there ever was a mercenary, she's a mercenary. She's got no problem with empathy because she knows it works. She knows it moves the ball forward faster and more effectively. And I think that's what a lot of people miss about empathy. They think it's weakness when in fact it's incredible strength. And how, how important is listening for empathy? Just, just out of curiosity, because, you know, Hillary had this big campaign, which she kind of caught fire for and just to, to sort of piggyback on that topic. But she this campaign that's like a listening campaign where she basically toured the country. And instead of people asking her questions, she just listened to what people had to say. And, you know, I think that that's a huge piece to empathy that often gets overlooked where we're, lis- we're listening to people to negotiate or we're listening to people you know, to, to inject our own opinion and we miss the opportunities to actually be, and I'll use your verbiage, 
you know, quote unquote, tactically empathetic, because then we miss those places where we actually can use empathy for the other person. So how imperative is listening in, in all of this, uh, in, you know, for negotiation? And, and do you have some tidbits for people? Yeah, well, as boring as it sounds, um, listening is actually an advanced skill. There isn't anybody that teaches negotiation that says, okay, I'm going to give you the basics. Here's a basic skill listening. No, it's an advanced skill because what happens is you're listening for what's going to make the deal or what's going to break the deal. And, you know, uh, one of my friends here in Los Angeles, I, I get the big, biggest kick out of this guy, Ned Coletti. He was a general manager from the Dodgers. He took him from worst to first his first season as GM. And in describing it from his, as a practitioner, he says, you know, a two-hour conversation is going to be 90 seconds of solid gold. And I got to listen for two hours to pick out those 90 seconds. And that's going to make the deal. It's going to be a change in tone of voice. It's going to indicate how somebody really feels about something and what they care about most. And it's the exact same thing as a hostage negotiator. We used to say, what's going to take to get the bad guy out? Well, he'll tell us, but not directly. And so listening is picking out what the solid gold is and con- and at the same time, you know, listening so that they feel heard because significant number of people that we negotiate with will give us what we want after they feel heard. That's all they want. And I like to think of my dollars as precious. If I can buy the deal with an emotional response, that means I don't got to spend dollars to buy the deal and I'll save my dollars for when I need them. Very cool. You know, one of the other principles in the book is to create the illusion of control. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that for us. Yeah, well, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. And there's some very control-oriented people that as soon as they feel like they're in control, they relax. Because, you know, there's a person on the other side that won't shut up. They talk the entire time. It could be a man or a woman. It doesn't make any difference. Um, but they feel like they have to be in control and the only time they're in control is when they're talking. And so, of course, um, at some point in time, you got to talk and they got to be listening. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And so as soon as they feel completely in control, that's when they listen. And the greatest way to do that usually is to ask them a what or a how question. Because, you know, what do you really want to do here? or what's the answer, gives them a chance to feel in charge because people love to be asked what and how questions make them feel smart. It's their opportunity to school you. And that's where you're going to hear the solid gold and they're going to relax because they feel like they're in charge. And it's a great way to apply great power through deference. I think there's great, great power in deference. And it's particularly when you're deferential to a control-oriented person, you now have gained the upper hand. They don't have any idea that, that you've done that to them. And I can, I can imagine in, in your case, you know, uh, you've had marathon hostage situations where, where you're going for hours and days and, and days. In, in those situations, how do you keep the other person's attention and keep them? I mean, obviously, they have a vested interest in, in, in negotiating with you, but at the same time, I can think of business negotiations I've been with, I've been in where where they start to fade and, and the energy kind of starts to dip and they just really aren't with you anymore and you just want to kind of keep the ball moving forward. How do you how do you keep them in the game? Yeah, well, the energy dips when you're battling with arguments. Like the two sides are starting to persuade the other each other, 
And there's, you know, and that's like paranoid schizophrenics talking to each other because they're, <laughs> they can't, they can't hear, they, they can only hear their voice in their own head, which is, I got to get my point across. I got to get my point across. And it's exhausting. And that's, that is why that the energy fades because people are exhausting each other and they're making no progress or they're getting the classic, the, you know, the great seducer of prog- progress, which is not, is when the other side says to you, you're right. Because that's exhausting because you're right is a phrase that we use when we want the other person to shut up. But we want to maintain the relationship. And people say that in negotiations all the time because they're trying to talk themselves. And it becomes exhausting because the very next day you're, you're back where you were the day before as if it had never happened. It's deja vu all over again. And as, as soon as we start to make progress or why we're there starts getting addressed... Um, then, then that'll keep the other side in. And that's how we kept negotiations going over hours or days or even months because we always made the other side feel in control. And to feel like you're in control is energizing. And you'll stay in a negotiation. And I'm going to, and then if when you're energized and you stay in, I'm going to burden you with every problem that you've created. And so you're going to feel like you're making progress when, in fact, I'm just waiting for you to come up with the answers that I want to hear. And then I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, wow, that was a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a great insight. Yeah. Um, just because we have to, just out of respect for time, uh, start to wrap it up here. One of the last things that we wanted to touch on was this concept of the black swans. You, you talk about it in your book. Um, can, you, can you let us give us some insight into what black swans are? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's the, uh, the small things, the improbable things, the tiny things, the two millimeters of difference that are going to have massive impact. And it's kind of a two-stage vision to wrap your mind around it. But the first stage is we've all got stuff that we're hiding in a negotiation. We've all got cards we're not showing. And if that's true, then it's true of the other side as well. They got cards they're not showing. Now, the black swans or where these two areas of unknown overlap. Because since I don't know what they're hiding and they don't know what I'm hiding, there's this amazing position there where those two unknowns, where they overlap. And, of course, if you're hiding cards, they're important. You know, otherwise you wouldn't hide them. And so you kind of double the value of importance and you can come up with some crazy, amazing solutions once you realize that there's this there's a sweet spot there in that overlap that by definition both sides are valuing very highly otherwise they wouldn't hide them that if we can get there it'll, we'll make a phenomenal deal and is there an ex- is there an example of of something you can share where where that became uh the key to you know uh the end the end of a negotiation the um I, i'm coaching one of the students in my class from georgetown and she's in a, a negotiation where they have millions on the table and it's deteriorating very badly. And, and, and the two sides, they no longer care how much money's on the table or how well the clients serve. They're just kind of mad at each other. And her approach was to go after the negatives and to say things like, I'm, you know, I'm sure we seem like bullies. I'm sure we seem like the big contractor who doesn't care about the little guy. But they really needed to get into what was driving the other side. And since the other side was mad at him, the other side wasn't telling him. 
You know, how do we make this deal? What adjustments can you make so that we're both eminently profitable? And she knew, she knew this situation from her side, and she knew she didn't have the whole story from the other side. Once she cleared out all the obstacles, the other side then began to reveal some issues and what they were dealing with that they weren't saying just because they were mad. And it was stuff that she couldn't have predicted. And when they got to that, they made a deal that ended up going from losing millions of dollars to it was more profitable for her side and the other side was happier with the deal and just staying in it made a lot of money for them. Very cool. You know, we've had a lot of serious conversation talking about negotiating, but as, as we wanted to wrap up here, we always love to ask our guests some fun sort of rapid fire type questions. I'm wondering if we can throw some your way. Uh, all right. This is a lightning round. I'm ready for the lightning, lightning, lightning round. Who is the most influential person of all time? Wow. You know, um, a couple of obvious religious figures there. I, you know, I got to tell you, uh, Jesus changed the Western world and how, and then the prophet Muhammad changed the Middle East. So I, I, I from my perspective, I, I, I'd give him a tie. You just split the difference there, didn't you? <laughs> I don't, that's a tie. That's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, the bravest person who do you think has shown the most courage and bravery? Wow. You guys are, are really, these, these are tough ones. Um, wow. You know, um, the first guy, that discovered milk because who, you know, to paraphrase Seinfeld, who looked at a cow and said, I'm going to go drink from that. And I- <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I was expecting. That, that was amazing. amazing. <laughs> what is the most underrated trait for modern day success? You know, I think patience. I think patience is a weapon. I think patience makes things go faster. And I think in this high speed world that we have, of multitasking and not being able to look away from our phone for two seconds because we're worried about what's coming into it. You know, I I think like the superstars of business today, you know, Mark Cuban, Warren Buffett, they both talk about how much time they spend preparing their brains by reading or thinking as opposed to doing. And I think Buffett talks about 80% of his time is in contemplation or reading. Cuban talks about how he's reading three hours a day. If time is our most scarce commodity, and and Mark Cuban's time's got to be worth a million dollars a minute, you know, and he's taking time to go offline because I think he's calculating and calibrating and being very patient and making sure every every move he makes is maximized. So I think I think those are very patient guys, and I think I think it's it's bearing out for awesome. And on the other side of learning is experience. So what's something that you think everybody should experience? You know, devastating personal soul-searching moments, especially in the United States, because we really kind of have it really good here. And, you know, very few of us wake up in the morning wondering whether or not we're going to get killed. Um, Very few of us wake up getting thoroughly wiped out. And we have, we put so much into our things um, that we forget how powerful we are as individuals and we rely on those things far too much. And I think I remember hearing a long time ago, the uh, piece of business advice is try to go bankrupt in your 20s because you learned you could survive it and you could bounce back and you could come back. So, you know, crash and being, being, being crushed and getting up 
and saying, hey, you know what? I can get up. I can get up from anything. I think, I think those are important experiences. Uh, if you could bring one book on a desert island, what would it be? You know, um, uh, The Alchemist. Uh, I thought The Alchemist was a phenomenal book. And interestingly enough, you know, the, uh, our hero goes through some of those kinds of experiences and gets, comes back stronger every time. Wonderful. I, yeah, it's a good one. Um, and one movie, the one movie that you would bring with you on the desert island, if you had a TV there, <laughs> theoretically. Yeah, it would probably be Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's Travolta and Samuel Jackson and, and, that, and that movie and then uh, everything is Sam Jackson, Samuel Jackson goes through. I mean, I think those guys were, were amazing. It's a classic. Uh, finally, Chris, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? You know, the... the the, the people can have an impact on their lives and that they can, they can make their lives better and that they can contribute to those around them and the people that were around them were happy they were on the planet. Tell people understand that. Chris, uh, what's, what's um, the best way people can get in touch with you, learn more about you, say hi, maybe throw out your website and uh, some of the social, uh, social media channels you're on? Yeah, sure. Uh, the website is blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N. LTD like limited.com. You know, I'm on, uh, on Twitter at Voss negotiation. We got a Facebook page and, uh, we've got a complimentary negotiation newsletter comes out twice a month. If you text, that's right. No punctuation, no spaces, just T H A T S R I G H T to two, two, eight, two, eight. You can sign up for the newsletter comes out twice a month and you start getting better at negotiation right away. It's complimentary. Awesome. Awesome. Chris Voss is the author of Never Split the Difference. It's, uh, it's hitting the charts hard on Amazon. Five stars right now. Tons and tons of reviews. Everyone seems to be loving it. We loved it as well. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the Mantox podcast. If, if, if any of our listeners want to learn more about Mantox itself, they can go to mantox.com for more podcasts, blog posts, lots of amazing new articles up there right now and information on all of our events. And please, please, please subscribe to us on iTunes so that you never miss an episode and Stitcher. Don't forget Stitcher. Uh, Leave us a a rating as well. It helps to go a long, long way to mount it forward and get the podcast into as many ears as possible. Thank you so much, guys and girls, for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation. 